here this morning. I've been um, spent a little time away from doing series of messages, and I've just recently uh, been searching a little bit and seeing what what should I embark on next. I, I kind of like doing a series rather than picking and choosing. And so I decided to uh, look at the Gospel of John and preach a series of messages going through the uh, Gospel of John. I think early on in my uh, conversion, our Bible study teacher there had encouraged us to uh, read the Gospel of John. It's a simple message and yet a very meaningful uh, read, especially for a young Christian. So as we consider the, uh, the series here, I thought I'd uh, get a little bit of background to the Gospel uh, of John, maybe a little bit of histor- historical background to the book and to the writer. Uh, John was the writer of, as we know, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, the epistles. And he also was the writer of Revelation. And then uh, the Gospel of John is also one that John was given. I believe that John's Gospel here was the last of the four Gospels written. Yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is, is very different from Matthew, let's say. And Matthew uh, brings in a bit of Jewish history into it. And, and John's Gospel is written from a different premise. And we'll look at that here a little later on. John was among the first disciples called by Jesus. We see that in Mark and in Matthew. And uh, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so I believe John had a special relationship with Jesus. Matthew and Mark refer to James and John as being brothers and the sons of Zebedee. So these are James and John. guess we'll just keep on going on a little bit of background noise there. Um, so Matthew and Mark to refer to James and John as being brothers, and they were the sons of Zebedee. And interestingly, if you uh, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, um, Jesus gives these brothers a, a surname, or we would say today a nickname. Mark chapter 3, verse 17 And he ordained the twelve. I'm going to start reading in verse 14, and we'll read several here, several verses. He ordained the twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach. These were the twelve, the inner group of Jesus' disciples. And to have power to heal sicknesses and cast out devils. And then here's where he starts with these surnames. And Simon, he surnamed Peter and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, he surnamed them, I'm not sure how to pronounce that name, Bernagos or something like that, which is the sons of thunder. 
So James and John inherited this nickname, the Sons of Thunder. And um, we see this being lived out as they um, interacted and walked with Jesus. We see a little bit of their um, thunder coming through at times. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 9. We'll look at that for just a little bit here. <clears throat> James and John. Luke chapter 9, verse 52 through 56. And here is, um, came to pass when the time was come that he should be ready, received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was as... And when his disciples, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we, that we command fire to come down from heaven to consume them even as Elias did? So here are these two brothers they had that you can see a little bit of their, their passion coming through of who they were. They said, oh, this is so, this is wrong. Jesus, let us, we, we call down fire and consume these people, destroy them because they're not receiving you. Jesus went on and gave them some powerful teaching here in these next several verses. We won't get into too much of this, but just a little bit of review. But he turned to them and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are. And then he went on to teach them. He said, I didn't come to destroy men, but to give men life. And uh, these sons of thunder needed to hear this message. They were passionate. They were men of zeal, I would imagine. <clears throat> In Mark chapter 10, um, these two brothers again had some of their thunder come through when it was time for, uh, they were interacting there with Jesus and they desired to be uh, one on the right and one on the left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. And as we're familiar with the story, Jesus again rebuked them and said, it's not mine to give. You don't understand. You're, this is not a, a position of authority, but it's a position of serving each other. He went on into teaching from that, from that um, interaction with James and John. So we see they were passionate brothers, these sons of Zebedee, John being one of them. It's very interesting though. Um, I think Peter would have been right, right with James and John when it comes to passion and zeal. But it's very interesting as I was studying for this message, the three disciples that I would see as being the most passionate and maybe even sometimes and often maybe had a misguided zeal. They were the inner core of Jesus' disciples. When it was time to go and raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, um, Jesus said to his disciples, you stay here 
only Peter, James, and John go with. And Peter, James, and John went with Jesus and into Jairus' house there and raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. It was on the Mount of Transfiguration that it was Peter, James, and John who went with Jesus and got to see some very intimate things between Jesus and the Father. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane that it was Peter, James, and John who went with Jesus' brother into the olive grove to pray. Jesus, multiple times, he called on them, specifically called on them, he said, I want you to come with me, the others stay. So I believe John, in fact, did have a very close relationship with the Lord Jesus and was very interconnected with the life of Jesus. We see him appearing multiple times in the book of Acts. And the Apostle Paul mentions him in Galatians. He mentions him as being one of the pillars of the church. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. And John, now we'll be looking at the Gospel of John 10, this Gospel. Why did, John, why did John write this gospel? We find his purpose for writing this gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says this, But these things are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So John was very clear on his purpose for writing this gospel. His reason for writing was that people would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In our Sunday school time, we talked just briefly about um, missing the Messiah because of the virgin birth and various other uh, cultural things. But John's passion was that you would believe that Jesus is this Messiah. He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So a bit of the design and scope of this chapter of John is, I believe, to confirm our faith in Christ as the eternal Son of God, the true Messiah and Savior of the world that we could receive him and rely on him as our prophet, priest, and king, and to give witness to the eternal Son of God and the revealed glory of God. So let's look at the first uh, three verses here in starting off, and then we're going to kind of move through and go back and forth throughout the chapter as we go through this. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Very foundational truth that John lays out here in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The, the beginning didn't have its beginning at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And this, this uh, is a very foundational thing for us to believe in Christianity. God in creation with His Son uh, created all things. In the beginning was the Word is an 
refers to Christ was before the beginning of creation. And what a wonderful truth that is for us to think. And this word was with God, and the word was none other than God himself, a part of God himself. This word that is used to describe Jesus here in John chapter 1 is the word logos in the Greek language. And we derived our word logo from this word logos. This word means it is an exact replication of something. And today, I've been involved in this several times where there's a fair amount of energy and focus when a, when a business company or a company chooses a logo that the logo represents the company on who they are. So that when you see the logo, it's a representation of who the company is. Here, when the word was sent by God, we know this was an exact replication of God himself. And John is very intent on us knowing and internalizing this truth. And this Christ is also creator. He was, all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made. So, Christ very involved in creation. John chapter, uh, later on here in verse 18, um, he says this, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So, I, I picture Christ coming, this, this phrase here, in the bosom of the Father. Um, I often thought this was referring to the lack like sitting on a lap and then being sent from the left of the Father. But this word bosom actually has the, the, the idea coming from the very heart of God. It talks about, the, the reference is from the chest area of the body. And so it's like a very, a, a part of God's heart was sent. A very intimate part of who God is was sent to dwell among us. <clears throat> he wants to John is very intent on clearly communicating to the readers of his gospel that looking at Jesus when we observe Christ we are seeing God himself we are seeing an exact replica of who God is and this word was made flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. It's a marvel that God himself came, took on human flesh, limited himself to space and time, and dwelt among us. I'd like to look for a moment here this morning on this, we beheld his glory, in verse 14. What do you think about when you think about the glory of God? What? comes to your mind. John says, we beheld his glory. If you're like me, I find myself, I find it challenging to explain the glory of God. 
if you were to ask me or anybody were to ask me what is a basketball I would tell you it's it's a round ball and it's about nine or ten inches round it's a little leathery and tan and you inflate it with air and you can bounce it on the floor and then the object of the game is to get it in the hoop up off the ground throw it into the hoop that's what a basketball is if you didn't know what a basketball is and one day you saw a basketball you would think huh that must be a basketball that's exactly what many describe glory of God is a little different than that. How do you describe things like glory and beauty and holiness? It's, it's hard to wrap your mind around exactly what is meant by the term. But we're going to attempt to do that this morning, though. Um, in Isaiah chapter 6, it says this, the, the seraphim were in the presence of God and they were saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the earth is full of his glory. Very good. You might think holiness, right? But the earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And the earth is full of his glory. When I think of a term, something like holy, for example, um, it has the idea of something being set apart. And when I think about that in, in terminology, um, you could say, for example, there would be three paintings on the wall, or a number of paintings. It wouldn't even need to be three. There could be a multiple objects that you observe. And there is one of those multiple objects that is distinctly different from any of the others. It doesn't even compare. Like it is vastly different. You could say that one is set apart from all the rest. That is the idea of holiness. It is something that is set apart. It is vastly different in so many ways from all the rest. That is the holiness of God. It is vastly different than anything, anything else that we know. <clears throat> well, what about His glory? This morning we sang that the passion of the... Um, I can't think. Glory of His name. Yeah. What, what do we mean when we say that? That the passion of the church be the glory of His name. What do we mean? What are we saying? Is that what we're saying? I'm sorry, I got the... The glory of His name be the passion. Okay. So what are we saying? Excited about Jesus.
I still am not. I'm trying to visualize it's basketball. You know, it's what's okay. Yep. And John here in the gospel, he said, "We beheld His glory." What did they beheld? What did they see? Was he talking about the Mount Transfiguration? I'm sorry. It's possible. Was he referring to the Mount of Transfiguration? Possibly. I, I'm thinking a little differently, though. But maybe. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was on the Mount Transfiguration when they saw the when they saw him transfigured. But I think this is referring to him being in the in the as they lived with him they beheld his glory but what was it all right let's go let's shift gears here just for a little bit think about Moses for example this morning Moses was leading the children of Israel out from captivity in Egypt that was his task that was his job here he is in the wilderness and these people are stiff-necked they're stubborn and they're rebellious and he goes and meets with God in the tabernacle in this cloud. And, um, and God begins to have conversation with Moses. And um, Moses is back and forth with God. They're dialoguing there. And Moses, he, he says this to God. He says, God, he said, I want to see your glory. Just show me your glory. It says there that he was appealing to God. He was making a plea to the Lord. Show me your glory. I want to see it. And you all know what God said? God said, you can't see my face and live. But, he said, I'll put you here in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover my hand and I'll walk past you and you can see my backside. As he said, no one shall see my face and live. So Moses observed this. God walked past Moses, put him in the cleft of the rock, put his hand there, walked past him. Moses got to see the backside of God. Did he see the glory of God? Some, I think, but not complete. Interestingly, in Exodus chapter 33, Exodus chapter 34 God comes down again and meets with Moses. And right after this event, and it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Right after God began this conversation with Moses, explaining to him who he is, Moses then, the response to that was he made haste and he bowed. 
his head toward the earth and worship. I would imagine Moses is struggling because these people are stiff-necked, they're rebellious. And now God says he revealed a part of his glory to Moses, I believe. Sure, he saw him physically, but we don't read how he responded at all to that. But when God explained to Moses who he was, Moses fell on his face. If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us. Come with us. Even though we are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. When Moses understood who God is, in spite of who they were, he fell on his face and said, come with us. I believe the glory of God is everything of who he is. And you, you could talk about, we can talk about this a little later if you want to disagree with this. It is, I believe, the manifestation. When we see the glory of God, what we are seeing is the manifestation of his character, his work, and his attributes. The glory of God is the manifestation of his character. It's not limited to this, but this is a part of it. The manifestation of his character, work, and attributes. For example, his love. In John, 1 John, the, the epistle, 16, 3, 16, he says this, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. So, when Jesus came, he revealed a part of God's character to us by giving himself for us thus revealing the glory of God. In the temple, we see also a part of God revealed when he took the whip and cleansed the temple. Turn to John chapter 8 for looking at a story here. Also, I believe, here again, revealing something about who God is and the glory of God. <clears throat> this is the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. John chapter 8, verse 7. And this lady, they caught her in the very act. And so there was no denying the fact that she was caught in adultery. Okay? They had these Pharisees and scribes. They had their bases covered. They said, we caught her at it. We know this is true. The evidence is there. And brought her to Jesus. And Jesus was here having a teaching session with his disciples. And they said, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And uh, would have thrust her, I believe, right in the middle here. 
And they said this, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So here they bring this, this lady that was caught in the act, and they thrust her there, and Jesus completely ignores them. Not only does he ignore them, but he bends down and writes something on the ground. And so they kept pressing, kept pressing. And then he lifted himself up and he said, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And one by one, these accusers went out. Until it was just Jesus and this woman. Now, Jesus here, it was an interesting thought to me. Jesus was sinless, right? In this circle of people that were around this lady, Jesus was the only legit person who could have threw a stone because he was sinless. He said, those of you who are here without sin, throw out the first stone. So Jesus could have, but he didn't. But he goes on, we're familiar with the story, he tells her, go and sin no more. He said, none of these people condemn you, neither do I, go and sin no more. He didn't minimize the sin. He acknowledged the, the sin, but showed love and compassion for the person. And I really believe it's like this thing of beauty, holiness, glory. What is glory? I believe a part of God's glory was being revealed as John and the disciples walked with Jesus on a regular basis. They got to see the glory of God, not only in a transfiguration sense, but also on a day to day to day as they walked and lived with Jesus. They saw these things and they saw the glory of God. It's kind of like if you say, that is beautiful. What is it? What does it describe? Beauty can describe many things. I believe when John said, we beheld his glory, he was, he was referring to more than the transfiguration. I believe that could have been a part of it, but it would have been more and broader than that. They witnessed it, they touched him, they leaned on his breast, they slept with him in the same room for three years. Think about it. If you walk that closely with somebody for three years, you're going to know that very well. And Jesus and his disciples, John, had a very intimate relationship with God. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They would have got to see Jesus responding to situations. And this, this, this story here is one of those stories. Responding to situations where, where some harshness might have been justified. But he responded always with grace. I feel like this is an area in my life where 
I'm needing to continually grow in. Full of grace and truth. These two things are what fallen man is in such desperate need of. Grace, I believe, is the delivery mechanism for truth. Grace being the delivery mechanism for truth. Truth delivered without grace or without season with grace is like a sounding thud. It's dead. <clears throat> in verse 16 in John chapter 1, um, and of his fullness have all we received grace for grace. And so it's like the woman with the, uh, with the empty oil containers that um, after it was Elijah came, um, they filled and they kept, and there was always enough there. That's, I believe, how this grace is worth. Grace for grace. More grace and more grace. <clears throat> grace, a constant source of grace. Verse 18, no man has seen God. Jesus, the Son of God, which is in the bosom, bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He hath made him known. So, if you want to see the glory of God, if you want to get a clear picture of who God is, look at the life of Christ. We'll get into the, the light of men. In um, verse 4, talks about him, this metaphor of light coming through here. And... Um, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is that source of light for all of mankind today. And uh, when, he, when he comes, he dispels darkness. <clears throat> I'd like to talk for just a minute on John the Baptist's ministry here in introducing Jesus um, as Messiah and as the, uh, the coming Messiah here. There was a man, in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. I believe right here in John chapter 1, 6, and not, 6 through 9, we see it's the essence of gospel ministry. It's right here. <clears throat> there was a man, John. And you could say he was probably the most privileged man of his day. He introduced the Messiah. He made straight a path for the very Son of God. He was bold. He was forthright. And yet, he was humble. He was resolute. He was so faithful to the preaching of the truth that it cost him his head. And here in verse 7, we are introduced to the ministry of John in the most simple 
turns. The purpose of John the Baptist's ministry was to cause people to believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And believing in him brings life to all who believe. This then, I believe, becomes the mission for every true believer and Christian. The true ministry about, of the Christian is about Christ. So John the Baptist introduced Jesus. Jesus came, lived here for three years, is now, was crucified, rose again, and now he is, and we heard this last Sunday, he's referring, it is the job of the Christian, I believe, to go and, and uh, proclaim this to the world, as John, in a similar fashion. In verse 23, we see, he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as says prophet Isaiah. In John chapter 1, 27, he it is who come, whose coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. And so John sees himself as simply a vehicle to bring in this wonderful message of Jesus the Messiah coming. When he says he is not worthy to unloose even his shoe latchet, it was the lowliest of jobs that somebody could get to go and loosen somebody else's shoe latchet and wash their feet. But he says, I'm not even worthy to do that. Interestingly, the next day, and John's ministry, as he, as he proclaimed the day of the Lord, and Christ came, and when Christ came, John's ministry began to decrease. And John was very intentional in, in uh, proclaiming this. In uh, John chapter 1, 29, he says this, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So he's looking at his disciples, and he introduces Jesus and says, Behold, here he is, the Lamb of God, taketh away the sin of the world. And uh, this proclamation, very interesting, caused two disciples to follow Jesus. And one of the two was Peter. So what about us today? In Acts chapter 11, we read that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And as we think about being witnesses of the light that came, what should that do for us? Christians were first called Christians in Antioch, and I believe they were called Christians there because they looked like little Christ. So when people saw their lives, they said, that's a little Christ. They are followers of Christ. And, you know, we've been talking about outreach, church plant, And I'll be honest, there's some days where I'm 
really passionate about this and the next day I think well we have so many things going for us here but I really believe this is important that we take this and we spread now wherever we end up going that we're very intentional and being a witness of the light similar to those who were in Antioch that when people saw them they said they're, those people, they must be from Christ. They must be Christians. Because of how they live, because of how they relate with us, because of how they relate to each other, they must be Christians. There's something different. It is my prayer that is our driving vision and passion as we think about outreach. <clears throat> and you could say, Probably these several verses here in John have become very, took on new meaning for me. Now just read them here in closing. There was a man, or you could say a church, sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Let's kneel together and pray.